Hello and welcome back to Beauty is Eternal, the art of being your best self for women, where I go in-depth and under the skin of my guests by asking them the questions that really matter. Today's episode is called Russian Casanova and ex-frat boy Oleg Maslov spills his heart on love, conquests, venture capital funding for women, and his book on simulation theory. I am not young enough to know everything, once wrote Oscar Wilde. Growing up the son of a pastor, Russian-American Oleg has gone on to sleep with hundreds of women before, in recent years, maturing. He is the author of an upcoming book about simulation theory, he is involved in venture capital, and he is a member of both an American and of a German fraternity. He was born in Russia and raised in Seattle. It's safe to call him an American-Russian hybrid. He has lived in the US, Germany, and Russia. He has two master's degrees. He currently works in venture capital and travels the world. I caught up with him during one of his stopovers in Berlin. Oleg is not the only man who is looking for the one and yet sleeping with many until he finds her. We want to dig a little deeper and learn more about his understanding of women for the sake of all women who've had their hearts broken by such a man and for the sake of other men who are also experiencing the similar pull in two directions. Some of the questions and topics he answers for us today include why does he give women fake numbers? How many women has he slept with? What is love? How do fraternities view rape culture? How does he approach a woman he is serious about versus one he is not serious about? What advice does he have for female founders looking for venture capital funding? And finally, why does he suspect our world is a simulated reality? Let's find out now. Thank you so much for being my guest today, Oleg. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thanks, Caitlin. It's a really, really big honor to be here. To get started, I know that you are really into adventure. You've had adventures around the world. Can you tell us a little bit about a time in the past when you went on an adventure and you did something fairly reckless, whereas nowadays, if you were on that adventure, you wouldn't do something so reckless? you're more mature and you're more safe nowadays in your life. So I don't think I can tell you about a time when I was fairly reckless, but I'll tell you about a time when I was utterly and stupidly and completely reckless. <laughs> when I was 21, I tried to climb Mount Shasta in California with nothing more than tennis shoes, basketball shorts, and a t-shirt. And I slipped and almost died burned 20% of my skin. The only reason was because I was stupid and uh, ambitious and there was no other reason why I should have been doing that. The proper way to climb a mountain is to get, you know, full licensing training gear and be very confident with the knowledge of going up there and the equipment that you're bringing with you. I am planning on getting my revenge on Shasta. I still have this adventurous spirit. It's not going anywhere, but this time I want to make sure to do it right. I want to make sure that I have all the proper equipment and know all the paths, get the proper guidance before I go up. I think despite growing older and despite being more risk averse, 
you still want to feed that adventurous part of you, but you do it in a much more knowledgeable way, I guess. What prompted you in the first place to want to climb Mount Shasta so unprepared? Well, Mount Shasta is a really weird place. I don't know how much you know about it, but uh, before Western colonial powers conquered America, the natives had a very holy and kind of sacred relationship to the mountain. And even after most of the territory was conquered by Western colonial powers and America, you know, after it became independent, uh, this kind of aura of spiritual energy continued to remain there. So that was really one of the reasons why we went there in the first place. It just so happened that when we were hiking around Mount Shasta, we kind of popped above the tree line and made it to about 9,000 feet high without any effort. And while well, I was 21, I got the idea that maybe it's going to be just as easy going up to the summit. So it was just a combination of factors that, combined with my stupidity and youth and arrogance at the time, turned into a deadly cocktail. Well, it's very lucky that it didn't actually kill you. Very lucky. How did you actually fall? What caused it? So it was the first day of summer when we went. It was June 21st. Mount Shasta is a snow-covered peak. It's 14,400 feet high. In the summer, when it's very hot during the day, the snow will melt on top uh, and it will freeze at night. So you have this powdery snow underneath, right? And this kind of layer of ice on top. So the ice is not very hard in the summer uh, because a lot of the snow has already melted away. So you have this kind of fragile layer of ice and a, a bunch of powdery snow material underneath. So when you step on it, it can like crumble away very easily, especially when you're standing on a slope. I hate to admit this, but the path that I followed to the top of the mountain is considered one of the most dangerous because it's, it goes along a ridge it doesn't go through a valley, which is usually easier and safer. Uh, a ridge is uh, basically this raised part of the mountain that goes up to the summit. They're usually technically more difficult. And there's a sheer drop usually, or there's a dangerous There fall. were 70 degree slopes on either side of this ridge when we were climbing. We just got to a point where, yeah, the snow broke from under my feet and I slid down into this valley. How were you rescued? Airlift. Airlift. They had to send a helicopter after How many friends were you with when this happened? I was with four friends, but only two of us tried to climb up to the summit. One of them, he I remember this moment, he said, Hey, I'm really kind of tired. Let's take a little break. Let's eat some sandwiches or whatever. And I said, I'll see you at the top. You know, I wanted to be the first one. And this is just a reflection of my, I guess, uh, stupidity and arrogance right at that time, which I like to think has transformed into something more... <laughs> Yeah. Well, you were lucky you had a friend with you. He was able to then notify others. No, the hikers that found me at the bottom of the valley were actually called the ones who called the helicopter. My friends were all in bad shape. They had severe sunburns. Wow. Yeah. So nowadays, if you were to transplant yourself to the foot of Mount Shasta, you're there with some friends. They're like, let's hike it. You've just got the tennis shoes with you. How would you handle that situation differently now? I would definitely be interested in walking around the mountain and looking at, you know, different locations and trying to absorb spiritual energy exactly as we originally planned to do. But I would stick to the plan, basically. I mean, once you know the dangers of something, you are much more hesitant to jump into it unprepared. So 
as soon as we would have gotten to this, you know, 9,000 foot point where we saw the curve of the earth and it was utterly breathtaking, I would have encouraged our party to go back to a lower elevation. That shows a lot of growth. Yeah. Part of the adventure is knowing when to throw in the towel of any adventure, of any business adventure, of any travels or, or anything else. Isn't there something called the myth of sunken costs? People think sometimes if they've already begun something and invested so much time in it, they have to continue till the end. Absolutely. But there's certainly a time to say, well, actually, this is not going the way I wanted it to. Yep. Enough. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. You see that a lot in uh, different ventures where, I mean, people throw good money after bad when a venture actually has no real chance of achieving success that the founder kind of envisions. But the founder continues to pour in his or her time and energy into this project and ultimately is disappointed. Holding on to a dream. Yeah. So in my introduction, I mentioned that you're Russian and born in Russia, but you were actually raised by your parents in Seattle. I want to talk a little bit more about your family and your roots. What language did you speak growing up at home? Yeah, so mostly Russian. And to this day, I only speak Russian with my father. With my mother, I'm mostly speaking English now. She's adapted very quickly to America and probably would consider herself more American than Russian at this point. With my father, it's a little bit different. He's held on to a lot of his you know, roots, traditions, beliefs, and especially the linguistic kind of traditions of his family and upbringing. It's funny because a lot of people, when I tell them about my, my heritage and kind of you know, the two countries that... I love, that have inspired me, that have contributed to making me who I am, they always ask, well, which do you consider yourself? Do you feel more Russian, more American? And the, the truth is, this question is much more complicated than a yes or a no, or a Russian and American. There are some things about me that are definitely much more American, like uh, this kind of more liberal, free-thinking creativity, and some things that I consider more Russian, like my connection to uh, some of the history of Russia you know, especially World War II kind of stuff. It's multifaceted. You know, they, I feel fortunate to be able to borrow some things from these two cultures, these two powerful cultures, to shape myself in a way that I think other people don't have access to. What prompted your parents to leave Russia for America in the first place? Everyone was trying to get out of Russia in 1993. The 90s were a very difficult time, but my parents had it especially difficult because they were evangelical Christians in the Soviet Union which the Soviet Union was always suspicious of religion, including, you know, the Orthodox, the dominant religion in uh, Russia, Orthodox Christianity. Other types of Christianity were viewed with an increasing amount of suspicion and scrutiny because of, you know, rumored connections to especially American secret services. And of course, the Americans were using evangelical movements to spy on different governments that's been documented. But that doesn't mean that most of the people who were true believers in their faith were spies, right? Even still, despite the government being very suspicious of these groups of people, the population of the Soviet Union, of Russia itself, is still very skeptical toward non-Orthodox Christianity. It's interesting to be Russian-American when these are two countries that have such a long history of being antagonistic towards one another, accusing one another of spying. That's a very interesting combination to have. And you grew up in a household 
where you spoke Russian, your parents were ethnically Russian, yet you were in America. Did you continue a lot of Russian traditions at home? Did you eat Russian food? Did you celebrate Russian holidays? So yeah, I mean, we definitely ate Russian food, and to this day my mom is an excellent cook. I love Russian food, it's amazing, uh, but with uh, evangelical type Christians, you don't really celebrate as much of the Russian holidays and don't have as many of the secular Russian holiday traditions as other Russian families do. So it actually made it quite difficult because when you grow up in another country and you go to school with American children, you look at your parents a little bit different. They're weird people. They're immigrants. They don't really understand the culture. And now you, as an American, you kind of have to deal with this. You're different because your parents are different. It forms a kind of divide, especially with my dad, who really didn't want to integrate. He was very comfortable being within the Russian community, continuing to pursue his religion, you know, using the Russian language as the core of uh, his religion. And that made things a lot more difficult, I think. And how did your personality develop over these years as a child? Were you outgoing? Were you shy? Were you extroverted? What was your personality like growing up in this hybrid environment? I think it's really kind of a unique situation. I went to five different elementary schools in the U.S. And in middle school, I was more of like a quiet kid who was trying to fit in, you know, with with the cool kids or whatever. I went to a high school that was different than most of the people in my middle school went to. So I had a chance at like a fresh start. And that really proved to be something that allowed me to express myself in a lot of ways. I became much more outgoing and became much more connected with my classmates, much more involved with the social life uh, at high school. So that was really nice. And what was your relationship like with your parents when you were growing up? Were you close to them? It was actually very difficult because right around high school, I started making friends and being in these social contexts that my parents really didn't approve of. For them, religion was always the most important aspect of my life and their life. And when I started to be interested in girls and parties, it started to form this gulf, especially with my dad, who was a pastor at a church. It, it's always very difficult for a pastor when uh, his children... Imagine you as the son of a pastor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a pastor's kid. And uh, I think people in the religious community, they understand that a pastor's kid is oftentimes not a very good kid. It was difficult for my dad because when you're a pastor, you want your kids to be an example of the religion, to help like lead some parts of the congregation and make things more. And I was... <laughs> no, it's, just, no it's, it's, it's completely fine. So I was this kid who did a lot of bad stuff and definitely didn't uh, contribute to the spiritual feeling in my dad's church, honestly. <laughs> yeah. What is making me laugh is that if you knew Oleg in person, <laughs> he's the most outgoing, charismatic, and charming person, but he's, you would definitely not imagine he's the son of a pastor. So it's a very interesting combination, and if you don't know that about him, you'd be quite surprised to, to hear it, actually. And you grew up with a lot of sisters. Yep, four. Four younger sisters. Wow. So you were kind of like the other man of the house, at least the man of the house who spoke English. My relationship with my sisters, I think when we were younger, it was kind of more rocky. There was always this kind of chaos and a lot of fights, a lot of like, obviously we had a lot of fun. But then as we grew older, there was this kind of 
implied trust and understanding, I guess. I was never this overprotective brother. They were and are very, very smart girls. So I always expected them to make good decisions with regards to other boys. And for me, it never mattered, like, you know, whether or not they were seeing someone who was rich or poor, black or white, or other things. Of course, if someone was involved in any kind of drugs or, or serious cr criminal problems, I would be much more defensive. But thankfully, none of my sisters had ever had that kind of problem. So it was really easy being the older brother of four younger <laughs> sisters. I never felt that I had to like step in or defend them from anything. And that doesn't mean that I wasn't ready to. But fortunately for me, there was never any, any need for that. It sounds like you had really good younger sisters, actually. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, I had some boyfriends that maybe my parents definitely didn't like, and maybe they weren't the, the best people, but I think it was good to have this hands-off approach. Now we have a lot of trust between us, and I think I'm really fortunate to be able to be open with my relationships and with their relationships in our conversations. Oh, like... Can you tell me how old you were when you lost your virginity? Yeah, I was 16. If I could go back, I would do it differently. It happened in a parking lot in the back seat of a car, and it lasted all of 30 seconds. And unfortunately, I didn't speak with that girl ever again after that. It was just like, I guess there was this culture of guys wanting to get rid of their virginity as if it's something that like weighs them down or makes them less manly or more apt to being excluded or ridiculed by their peers, especially in American high schools. I don't think one way or the other that it's necessary to be used as a bargaining chip or something like that, but... If you really want to engage in intimate intimacy, it's so much better to find it in the context of someone who you really like and trust rather than trying to just get rid of it, you know, as if it's something that you need to dispose of, I guess. How would you do it differently if you could choose the circumstances now? I would have been, you know, in a relationship for like at least a few months and it would have been really nice to have booked a hotel somewhere with a nice view and do it a little bit differently that way. And since the first time that you lost your virginity, how many women have you slept with? Well, <laughs> let's just say that after I joined the American fraternity, which was when I was 20, there was an average of about 20 women per year. So that times 10? You know, Caitlin, I don't want to go through the mathematical <laughs> equations. So he's saying ballpark 200. That's not as bad as I expected. That's the lower estimate. 200 to 400? Something like that. Any crazy stories? Many. For instance? <sighs> this is, is going to be following. I don't want to tell all the really bad ones. There's just been a few, like, in the German fraternity where... Oh, no, I can't, I can't, because these types of stories are going to get me in trouble later. <laughs> I will tell one story, though. It's 
it's not a fun story. So just to warn you, right? Uh, I don't think this person is going to be identified, but there was a time in, in my life when I was seeing somebody and we went back to my place. We were both very drunk and we had gotten naked. We were, you know, getting ready to be intimate. She was very drunk and obviously having a great time and so was I and then she said no. And I was on top of her and the situation could have been very bad. I'm really thankful that despite being very drunk and very horny that I didn't do what I wanted to do, right? I think I'm lucky because for me it's really important for for me to enjoy like really intimate situations. It's really important for the lady to be very interested in the same thing, right? That it's just not fun for me if it's all about just what I want. His part of the process is this like return of energy. It's this like transfer of energy of really positive energy that's really enjoyable for me. And I feel really fortunate that maybe this this characteristic makes me makes me a little bit different than other people who um, you know may have just thought with one part of their body, for example, right? Especially after this, you realize how close you can get to going against somebody's will, right, in these sexual situations. And I've never told, I mean, never said this in a public way, I very rarely talk about this, but it's still a very vivid memory that, like, the uh, exact situation when both people are very drunk, you know, on the point of being sloppy, and where both people are having a great time, and they're both naked, and about to engage in, in intimacy, and one person says no. And this is, this is challenging, right? I think that in that time, though, like using this as a, as a lesson or as something that, I've, that made a very deep impression on me, I think it's really important for me in every single case where the intimacy is possible to be sure that, that the lady I'm with is really interested in the situation as well, right? And consensual kind of relationships they need to be consensual all the time. And I don't think that guys should have any kind of qualm in asking constantly, not obviously not constantly, but <laughs> frequently, right? If this is okay, if this is good, right? And always uh, understanding, not only understanding, but respecting barriers that are put by women. Because I think in, I mean, maybe this is going to sound sexist again, but this is just my opinion. I think women are kind of the more vulnerable actor in intimate situations. And so it's kind of important for men who usually have more power, who usually kind of are a little bit more, again, just my opinion, I guess, uh, have the upper hand in the situation. I think it's really important and wise and prudent for men to be well aware of the barriers and the desires. Yeah, you can be a dick afterwards and, you know, choose not to pursue any kind Give of relationship. Give her a fake number. What? Give her a fake number. Give her a fake number, exactly. <laughs> or, you know, what have you to... Or ghost her or any other dick move. She can be a dick and ghost you. That That's fine. But as long as the, the consensual... The act is consensual in that moment that it's what both people want, then that's a safe and good experience, I think. After completing your undergraduate in Seattle, you then moved to Europe. Yeah. You, very specifically, you did two master's degrees, one in Germany and one in Russia. 
I was living in Berlin at the time that I decided to do my master's. I wanted to have a master's that was kind of applicable to the EU. I think that's just strategically interesting. And that was kind of the biggest consideration that I had. I wanted to have a master's that was good for the EU. Uh, but I also really wanted to go back to Russia and live there and experience the motherland, I guess you would say, you know, see what's uh, see what it's like. I don't know, maybe like fine tune my Russian, get an inside look at the culture. And of course, uh, another big consideration was that the master's was free. So I did it. That's something that usually surprises people in America to learn. Not all programs yeah. are free, but the majority are free. Yeah. So you can study virtually anything and you don't come out of the study program with a hundred something thousand dollars of debt yeah. like you do in America. Absolutely. So you actually first came to Europe and then decided to do the master's yes, programs. That's you right. didn't come to Europe to do the master's no. programs. Did you experience any culture shock when you came to Europe? Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't really me being shocked. It was other people being shocked at me for some things that, you know, Americans don't really think about, but that Europeans consider very crass sometimes. I don't want to give any specific examples because it'll just make me look bad. It was also shocking um, to see how much more, I guess, cultured and less superficial Europeans are than Americans. And I, some people will probably hate me for saying that, but that's my honest opinion. I think uh, when I speak with European people, there's generally quite a depth of character, not only to the way they think, but also to the way they act and to their relationship with, first of all, like food and I mean, their living spaces, but also uh, to the way they treat each other in the conversations they have. I just feel like it's deeper in a way. That's an interesting point you bring up, and it reminds me of something. I've noticed very often when people spend a semester in America or they go visit America for a couple of weeks, they come back and they say, oh, I love Americans. Americans are all so friendly. They're all so nice. And I say, well, a lot of people are very friendly and they are very genuinely nice. But Americans on a very superficial level, when you first meet them, tend to be quite open and welcoming, but it's not always sincere. You need to stay somewhere a little bit longer to see, oh, that person who I just met invited me to come hang out with them, if they ever actually invite you. Or that person who seems so interested in you, if they ever speak to you again, for instance. Whereas I think, at least in Germany, if somebody invites you over, they're inviting you over. If they really want to talk to you, they'll follow up with you. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, in general, it's just this level of sincerity, like you said, genuineness, depth, that was quite shocking for me. Russia is a little bit different. I mean, I really enjoyed German punctuality, and I hope to, like, absorb some of it into my own approach to life. Russia was a little more chaotic. I had already quite a bit of insights into how Russian people are, and it wasn't so surprising for me, but I totally understand people that are very surprised by some of the Russian customs. How did you come to join a German fraternity? <laughs> yeah. So when I first moved to Berlin, one of the reasons I moved to Berlin, uh, there was an ex-girlfriend here. And very soon after we moved here, I, she broke up with me, actually. So I was kind of alone in a new city. Work colleagues were cool. But it never really clicked, especially because I was going through my own kind of 
internal problems with the breakup and with being in a new city and problems with my parents. So actually, one of my sisters was living in Argentina at the time and recommended that I meet up with uh, one of the people that she studied with, who, it turned out, was a member of a German fraternity. Uh, and they invited me over for a Kneipe, which is an event that fraternities do. As the name suggests, there's a lot of drinking involved. I'm shocked. Yeah, <laughs> I was also shocked. <laughs> I was in an American fraternity for my undergrad and was really curious to see what it was like. So, of course, I joined. It clicked with a lot of the guys right away. Um, Never say the law of attraction doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was a synchronicity coincidence. I don't know. Maybe it's what I needed in my life. What was life like being a member of a German fraternity? And I know you also lived in this fraternity. Well, uh, Caitlin, so <laughs> there's, um, as you may or may not know, there's quite a bit of drinking that goes on in fraternities. Uh, so there was that element. We had some quite a bit of parties. The main difference between American fraternities and German fraternities, in my opinion, there's two. There's the uh, what in German is called the Lebenslangprinzip, which is uh, a lifelong membership. In an American fraternity, after you're done with your undergrad, it's weird if you come back. It's like um, unusual. The people who live there, the you know, the active members, they'll look at you strangely and will kind of encourage you to leave. But in Germany, you're always welcome as a full member. You can be 70 years old and crash in one of the beds if it's available in the fraternity and everyone will love it. It's not just that they won't bat an eye, but you will be more than welcome. You'll be an integral part of that community and it's for, for your entire life. So older members are encouraged to come uh, attend the parties uh, and drink with the, with the guys uh, throughout their entire lives. The other major difference is sword fighting. So German fraternities have this tradition going back hundreds of years. In the times of the German Empire, uh, in the Prussian Empire, the military nobility was obviously meant to become officers, and they were being groomed for senior-level military roles. But as nobility, they were very valuable to the empire, so they weren't going to be charging into the front lines. They weren't supposed to be killed. So it's very hard to foster this culture of, of bravery and fearlessness and command presence without having someone experience combat duty and without ever having even a plan to be put in direct combat. So one of the ways to do this was to organize these fencing matches where there was a lot on the line. The stakes were very high. Somebody could get their face cut or their ear cut off or you know receive a scar for life. On the other hand, it's not life-threatening. There was no chance that anyone participating in these sword matches was going to die. So this was a way in the past to like instill this culture of bravery without actually risking the lives of people who are systemically important to not only to the uh, military command structure, but also to the functioning of the empire. To this day, you know, this sword fighting takes place where members of the fraternity will face off against a member of a different fraternity in a sword fight that could, you know, scar them for life. I received a scar as well. Where is your scar? It's on the top of my head. I got seven stitches. I gave a few as well. Did you learn fencing before you arrived at the fraternity? No. Or did you... No, no, no. It, so the fencing that they do uh, in German fraternities is 
quite different from Olympic fencing with the bendy swords and the white armor. It's called academic fencing. Basically, it involves you standing about a meter away from your opponent. You don't move any part of your body except for your arm. You're swinging the saber, which is a fixed blade thin sword, over your head and you're aiming at the other person's head. So you're trying to strike blows on their face. Usually you have to train for six months before you are able to do a match. When you train, you have a helmet and you have padding on your shoulders and arms. But when you do an official match, you wear basically eye protection and nose protection. Of course, your neck is fully covered as well, so you're never going to receive a life-threatening injury. But the sabers are sharpened, and you're aiming at the other guy's cheeks and the top of his head. And there are hundreds of people around you watching from all the different fraternities in your region. They're all watching you and judging you how you perform. Some of them are hoping you get hit. Others are hoping you don't get hit. The adrenaline is like nothing you've ever felt. It's just when you get up there and you know your face is on the line and you know you can make your this guy's face. face. Is on the line. Yeah, yeah. I mean, imagine you get a scar across your cheek. For a girl, that's like life ending. Life ending. Not to be sexist or. For me, I think the women in my life and women in general are much more conscious about things on their face. It's a very, very powerful thing, the face. In Russian, there's this uh, saying that a scar is a decoration on a man's face. Yeah, it's just a totally different world, different culture. While you were in the fraternity, what was the attitude like towards women there? Did a lot of your brothers have girlfriends? Were they single? So... Generally, in a fraternity, it's much better to be single. I think that (laughs) (laughs) even if you have a girlfriend, there's just like kind of this very liberal view toward sex and relationships. A lot of it is much more of a temporary kind of approach where you don't really expect to have a long-term relationship with a lot of the people that come through to different parties. There are lots of opportunities to engage in sex, basically. It's like that in America. It's like that in Germany. I think, you know, it breeds also, of course, like a, not a very healthy view towards women in general. But on the other hand, I think that people that attended our parties also had quite liberal views towards sex and men. I remember I attended one of your parties with you. And I remember that I couldn't put a glass of water, for instance, on the table because it was so full of beer and cigarettes. Can you talk a little bit about rape culture in the German and the U.S. fraternity? When you were in the fraternities, this was not something as talked about then as it is now. But looking back, was it something that men talked about amongst each other? Was it something people were aware of? Yes and no. So... I shared my the experience of how easy it is for that kind of situation to develop when I shudder to think, what if I had been more drunk or she, you know, whatever. If the situation had been slightly different, how, how it would have turned out, I don't know. It's hard to say with the counterfactual, right? It's in those kind of situations when kids are really young and there's all these emotions about, you know, sexual emotions that are just bubbling, that are trying to get onto the surface and trying to get expressed and you add alcohol and maybe some drugs into the mix and you you take off some clothing and it starts to escalate it's super difficult to especially as a you know a younger adult to know what the limits are and to be able to act on those limits 
also there's some toxicity like i said there's this kind of like push in uh especially like high school environments and college environments to be rid of uh your virginity and to like have your like the amount of your sexual exploits as like somewhat of a calling card you know is something that people will respect you for right this is also evolutionary this goes back to uh, some really fundamental drivers for male, especially male behavior, that, that come out of uh, primitive states, you know, and that get passed down generation after generation. They were very necessary for survival at one point. And now, you know, that we've entered this kind of higher civilization, they're vestigial, they're like uh, primitive, you know. Of course, there's so many situ situations when it's so difficult to say like who wanted what who said no who said yes but like i said i think for a man in that kind of, in any of those types of situations the most important thing is to be absolutely sure that you know a woman's barriers and whether or not they change because they can and if there is any indication of change there needs to be like some sort of clear clarification that everything is as you think it is as far as the culture goes, personally, I didn't witness any kind of, uh, any intentional effort to... Sexually exploit. Right, right. From my experience and my opinion, there was a lot of consensual stuff going on. A lot of consensual stuff. Do you have any crazy fraternity stories? Maybe not necessarily your own? Yeah, not necessarily my... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's right for me to tell you those <laughs> stories. It's just going to come back and not, not be good. I'd like to ask you a little bit more about your relationship history. Oh, God, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I say in the introduction, I've known Oleg for some years. He's very popular with the ladies. As you can see from the picture in the show notes, he's a good-looking, charismatic man. And it's very interesting for women to understand... <laughs> what goes on in the mind of a man. My female friends are constantly asking me, what is this guy thinking? What does this mean? I'm always asking my boyfriend for his advice about what's going on with my friends. And it's because men and women think very differently. So to start with, how many relationships have you had? Like girlfriends? Like official girlfriends? Yeah, official girlfriends. I think the number is like seven or eight. That's pretty high. Yeah, I guess. And how many of those broke up with you versus Wait, you on, broke up with them? Okay, real quick. One, two, three, four. Uh, okay, yeah, it's probably closer to like five or six. Did any of those break your heart? Did you break any of Absolutely. their hearts? Yeah, yeah. Both ways? The, the Berlin girl really messed me up for a long time. I think I, I definitely broke one heart as well of those relationships. There were some smaller duration ones where I think it was quite difficult for my lady after I decided to end it. I, I didn't really consider some of the shorter term ones like relationships. How does something become a relationship for you? Is it when you have an official talk? Yeah, when it's communicated, right? When it's something that we agree on, that we're exclusive, that we're interested in each other and that we kind of like say it out loud, I guess, you know? There's got to be some event where it becomes clear afterward, at least for me. Otherwise, I don't. it's, it's just not serious. Well, you don't want a woman you're serious about 
messing around with other guys For so sure. if you make that decision you'll communicate that or make sure it's been communicated yeah, yeah. between the two of you absolutely so let's say you meet a girl in a bar how long does it take you to know if you're interested in just perhaps spending a short amount of time with her, for instance, a night, or if you want something more serious? And what types of things trigger she's a relationship girl or... <laughs> I mean, if I meet her in the bar, it's just, for me, that's already kind of one of those temporary things, to be honest. So if you meet a woman in a bar, it's pretty much always a signal. <laughs> I think every guy's different. Every guy has his own, you know, kind of things that he likes, but it was always really nice to have a story of how we met for me to start a relationship for some reason that's just like something that that i'd like to tell my kids i guess or something that's poetic that i think makes makes it all that much more deep it's stupid but th th that's something i like you know and meeting somebody in a bar is not really just how i foresee that it sounds like you're a romantic at heart actually because meeting someone in a bar doesn't give you that same kind of romance yeah. So actually, the location's really important for you. Are there any locations that would be ideal? A ball, an event, a private event, some sort of... Friends of friends? memorable. Something where there's a story behind it. It's, it's always case by case. There was one of my exes, I met her at a ball, another ex. We met at, at university, and there was a long story behind that. I guess it's something that's important to me. I don't know why. Let's take the example now. Let's say that you meet a woman in a situation that's acceptable for you. It's at an event that you're really interested in. For instance, a polo event. What? You meet a girl and you're interested in her. Let's take two different scenarios and I want, I want to understand how you'd act. So the first scenario is a girl that you think, okay, I could maybe you know date her briefly, but I don't think she has long-term relationship material for me. Versus a girl and you think, wow, this could be the mother of my children. How would you act differently with the two of them? And I'm asking because I know there are women listening who are often wondering, how can I tell if he wants something serious with me or not? I mean, if I'm really interested, then I'll definitely try to make time. I really wouldn't want to try to sleep with a woman that I'm really interested in for a, a certain period of time, like two weeks or whatever. <laughs> yeah, well, at, le at least, uh, you know, <laughs> there's the opportunist in me who when I meet a woman and I think there's a chance to, uh, <laughs> to when I think there's a chance to like have sex with her basically I will approach it in a very opportunistic kind of way where if there's chemistry if there's interest then we go out and if we don't then I kind of just like stop the conversation I guess let's say that you're giving advice to a female friend and she's saying to you Oleg I met this guy, I'm trying to determine how serious he is about me or not, if, or he just wants to, you know, fool around. What questions would you ask her about him to try and determine his level of interest? Yeah, so for me, right, I'm never the kind of person who wants to be in a relationship for a relationship's sake. I'll only be in a relationship if I understand that this is like a future, right? And part of that for me is, do I actually like this person as a person? Am I happy with the conversations? Am I happy with this person's goals in life, with their principles, with their, you know, idea about how they're going to be financially stable and, you know, many different things that are super important when you choose a partner for a business. It's the same approach, right? Because why do you want a relationship? Is it because you want someone to comfort you or make you feel better about yourself? If that's why you want a relationship, then why waste your time? I just don't get it. 
I mean, if, if you really think that this will make you happy, just the act of having someone in your life to hold, you, you have a different set of considerations and problems that I just can't relate to. If you're really interested in trying to start a future with somebody which involves children, which involves mutual bank accounts, which involves mutual investments and like getting close to each other's family and actually starting a future, right? Building something because for me, the idea of a relationship is so intertwined with the idea of children and marriage that it's also borrows things from business, things from contract law, and it's a lot more of an investment. And yeah, it sounds kind of cold and I guess absent of emotion and, and a lot of those things. But for me, this goes back to the nature of love. People use this word all the time. It means something different to everyone. I think it's ridiculous. I think it's nonsense. The absence of a definition of love is an excuse that people use to justify their biological, emotional feelings of wanting to reproduce and the social pressure of being with someone to justify being in relationships that aren't very productive or healthy. For me, it's just like, it makes so much more sense to avoid going into something where you know you're not going to be happy versus cultivating yourself, doing things that enrich your own life, and finding someone who fits into that positive sum game. So your advice would be to try and figure out why you want this person For in sure. the first place? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you're super needy and you need a relationship, you need someone there, that's fine. And just be aware of the kind of people that you're going to attract. If you want something different, first of all, you have to understand what it is that you want. What is it that you want? Do you want kids? Do you want a husband? Do you want somebody who, you know, is going to get you pregnant and then take care of your kids and grow old with? Is that what you want? And why do you want that? Let's take the example that somebody knows that she wants that. She wants to get married yeah. and have children. She has her life together. Yeah. She's met this guy. He seems great. They've been dating for one, two months. And she's trying to understand, is he really thinking of investing in me for the long run or? Well, she should definitely start asking if he wants kids. If it starts to turn him off, then it seems pretty obvious. So that, that would be one of your go-to Eventually, questions. right, for sure. As a girl, you definitely want to know where his priorities lie. If you're scared of turning him off with those kind of questions, then maybe you're not ready to take a stab at finding out if this person's right for you just because of uh, your own kind of insecurities. I mean, if you really want to know if this person's right for you, you shouldn't be scared of finding out whether or not he has the same values as you. You mean it's fine for you to ask if you meet someone and you like them and you want something with them more serious? I mean, obviously you don't want to ask like right away because that's a red flag to a lot of guys. I don't mind. But I, one or two months in is yeah, sure. a game. And I think it's generally your conversation should be interesting enough that you can talk about a range of different things without scaring the other person. I know that you would like to find a wife and settle down and have children. Eventually, yeah. What are you looking for? There's so many different factors involved, not just in a woman, but in myself as well. I want to be in a situation where I feel completely com confident that I'm going to be able to provide the right sort of atmosphere and circumstances, both for my relationship and for my kids. And right now I don't feel like it's the right time. What are the top qualities you're looking for in a woman? Well, there's the physical stuff, which is important. You know, um, I think all the physical stuff has to feel really good and nice. I like somebody who smiles a lot, who is a nice person, who is kind and 
I personally can never be with someone who I don't feel satisfies me intellectually. If I don't think that I'm going to be able to talk to you, you know, across from the pillows for 20 years, 40 years, it just doesn't make that much sense to me. I feel like there needs to be like a sort of mutual respect on some level where you clearly understand why you respect this person to be able to then boost that quality, to make that quality better. I also think there needs to be a lot of kind of business, kind of transactional, complementary aspects. This is just my opinion, of course. I mean, I think marriage is like also very financial. It's a contract after all, you know, and there's prenups and there's all sorts of different things that go into it. But really, you're managing finances together as business partners in a lot of ways, you know, and there's so many things that go into that. Like, would you trust your money with someone who you don't think is very good with money? Uh, no, you wouldn't. All of those things need to fit in the calculation. It's not just one thing. It's like this complex set of different characteristics that are based on your own strengths and weaknesses, you know, and especially where there might be areas where you complement each other. If she's really good with accounting and finance and you have this like creativity and motivation and drive and you know, something that can brighten her day or whatever, or she loves to cook and take care of kids and you're the kind of guy who makes money. It just depends on priorities. The whole lock and key analogy is, is I think, really important, which also happens to correspond to genitalia, but whatever. <laughs> whatever. Are there any characteristics in a woman that a woman might think would be important to a man but actually don't matter at all? For instance, sometimes a woman thinks, oh... I met this guy, but he hasn't written me in a few days. Maybe he thinks I don't care. Is that ever the case? It's tough. It's so tough because usually if the communication isn't there, it's just a lack of interest, honestly. Lack of interest is the biggest reason that a guy doesn't communicate. I would say, yeah. If you're really interested in a girl, then you make sure to stay in touch with her. I mean, some guys have complicated strategies or whatever that they try to do, but for the most part, judging by myself, like if I'm not writing you, then it's just... I'm not really that interested. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Can I ask you to open up about a couple anecdotes from times when you were not that interested in women, but had a couple of your adventures? Yeah, so that happens actually quite a bit. I mean, not... <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really bad. So, uh, yeah, th there are times when, you know, you have a great night, you're drunk, and... You meet a girl who's having a lot of fun with you and there's chemistry, right? You end up getting a little bit physical. Maybe you're kissing at the bar or whatever. And then there's some passion. You decide to like continue, right? This kind of like intimate exchange. You go somewhere, you know, his or hers, and you, you get really intimate. And the next morning you realize that like, oh, I'm going to be traveling and I don't actually know this person. I don't really care or a range of reasons and maybe she's really interested in continuing the contact but for whatever reason you just don't leave your number with her right or you give her a fake number and I've done this before and I know people that have done this quite often as well where it's just like a final way of saying no you know like this isn't going to be anything more than that from speaking to you it doesn't sound like You've ever met a girl you wanted something serious with? It's never begun for you with a drunken night in a bar, has it? Not in a bar. <sighs> no. I, w I would say absolutely not. 
there was a relationship that began with quite a bit of alcohol in a ball, like a, you know, a formal tuxedo mm -hmm. and ball gown kind of situation. So I talked to you a little bit earlier about attachment theory, which suggests that people are usually secure, anxious, or avoidant, or anxious avoidant, depending on how they related to their early parental figure. And this affects them later in how they relate to partners. So the attachment style develops when people are babies, 12 to 24 months usually, and it's based on large part on their relationship to their primary caregiver. Secure people are more likely to be in relationships, whereas anxious avoidant or anxious avoidant combinations are more likely to be single. Typically, someone who had a good, stable relationship with their primary caregiver when they were a baby will be secure later in life. Whereas someone who did not have a secure relationship with their primary caregiver, for instance, if their parents were fighting all the time, nobody was there to feed them, nobody listened when they cried, they didn't get enough love, attention, then they'll likely be anxious, avoidant, or in the most difficult cases, a combination of anxious and avoidant. I'm adding a link to this in the show notes in case you want to take a test and figure out what your attachment style is. Where do you think you fall in this category? Yeah, definitely more towards the anxious slash avoidant spectrum. I don't think it's because of the caregiving style or, or anything like that, even though I, I obviously don't remember exactly what happened when I was that young and how my parents took care of me. I think for the most part, I'm kind of more avoidant, I guess, because if I don't see a reason to go into the relationship, I'll just avoid it. If I'm not interested, I don't see a reason why. Men are more likely to be avoidant. Women are more likely to be anxious. So the best example of this would be a man and a woman meet at a party and they exchange numbers. They go out on a couple of dates and the man does not send the woman so many messages and she's worrying, what's going on? Does he still like me? So she sends him a message. Is everything okay? Thinking of you. And he's not really responding or he's saying, oh, it's fine. And then he's telling his friends, oh, it's girls all over me. I just don't want to deal with it. So he's avoidant because he gets overwhelmed by her emotions, which become very attached and very needy very quickly. And then she gets hurt because he pulls away from her when she wants him to actually get closer. So it, it can be a cycle and it's more likely that the man is avoidant and the woman is anxious, but it can also be reversed. I know of many cases where it's been reversed. Mm. I mean, a lot of this comes back to evolution. A lot of this comes back to the feelings, the mix of chemicals that we developed kind of as a species that was just entering consciousness, like getting this conscious awareness of our place in the universe. And the things that we need for our survival are, I think, quite a bit different for men and women. The mix of emotions and I guess, psychological approaches that men and women experienced in like this tribal setting definitely contribute to a lot of these feelings. These overwhelming emotions that come from our reptilian primal brain. Right. And our approaches to relationships as a result. Subconscious things that we don't even realize. Very true. For instance, I'm a big fan of someone called the feminine woman. And she explains it. She uses the analogy that for a woman, if she were in a relationship with a man and he started to pull away, this could mean death for her. He could leave her when she was pregnant. She might not be able to get food for herself, for her baby, right. if he were to find another woman. 
So sometimes the fear that a man is pulling away is actually firing up the primitive part of the brain that's saying this is life or death. If he goes away, I'm going to die. And that can cause irrational behavior. Yeah, of course. Of course, anytime that you feel like you're desperate, it begins to change your behavior, like you said. But on the other hand, a man is, as any social creature, right, always trying to improve his situation and if there's this sense of I could do better, then that's also like a motivating factor for him to be less interested, you know? Very true. I'd like to switch gears a little bit. So we've talked about your upbringing, we've talked about the fraternity, we've talked about love, but what we haven't talked about yet is your current career, which is venture capital. Yeah. We were having a conversation recently and you mentioned that venture capital companies are especially interested in investing in companies founded by females. Can mm. you talk a little bit more about this? There's a big movement right now to correct imbalances in capital flows that go to young companies. It's not just that there's more interest among venture capital companies to invest in startups that were founded by women or minorities. It's also this kind of realization that companies with a more diverse founding team or advisors are more suited to be successful in different situations. They have a different type of creativity that maybe a homogenous team of you know all white, all male founders doesn't have. It's very interesting to see that there are many influencers that are coming up in this space who are talking with women founders and how they're approaching their company, how they're running their company, and how they're creating this network of support for women founders to access resources on how to build their company, on how to present certain metrics and certain ideas, and then how to access venture capital. I think uh, it's it's really nice that there's this network of support that's being developed for women founders because the numbers are really skewed right now. Of course, you know, white male founders are getting the majority of venture capital money still, but that number figure is starting to change. There is increasing flows of capital from venture capital funds to companies founded by women, founded by minorities. And of course, this is kind of more of a Western phenomenon. This is something that's going on mostly in the United States. And I think in general, it's positive. Not only does it encourage venture capital investors to consider different factors when they're looking at companies, but it also encourages women, especially women, to realize that they have so many tools, so many support systems to help them come up with an idea that, you know, whether they want to change the world or whether they want to make money can be successful and can be funded, can secure an investment, and second of all, can generate a return. I think that women founders have much more of a robust kind of set of uh, people that they can turn to, resources that they can use, and a support structure that m should make them understand that they have increasing sets of tools that give them much more of a chance to be successful in this like cutthroat capitalist world. Things are changing quickly and for the better. We're still far away from seeing kind of like an equal distribution of venture capital resources. As I mentioned, I think it's slowly starting to change. People across the spectrum of, you know, races, nationalities, genders, etc., are starting to professionalize. And in the end, what you really want to see is the top talent come up to the top of like the ranks of funded companies. 
companies that are successful, startups that are interesting, that change the world. Is that at all genre specific? Is food technology, is it in everything? This is going to be way off the mark because I haven't studied these numbers, so I don't really feel super confident in answering this question. In general, it really depends on the core competencies of if the founder, you know, if she worked on Wall Street or if she has experience with the fashion industry or what have you, that's going to have a serious impact on the overall assessment of the company that she's building. In general, as a rule of thumb, regardless of other factors, the competencies of the founder or the founders are the most important aspect of uh, the consideration process for whether or not they get funding. What attracted you to work in venture capital? Well, I was building my own company for a little while. It was called FlyFit. It was designed to help travelers find and book fitness when they're in different cities. Which is a great idea, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, I was really optimistic about it. And of course, theory is very different from practice. I would do some things quite different if I were to go back. I'm really kicking myself in the foot because I started doing this in 2017. And I realized that if I would have tried to do like an ICO or a token offering, I could have made quite a bit of money. But, you know, water under the bridge. So you don't just work in venture capital, you're also an author, and you have a book coming out about simulation theory. You were explaining this to me earlier. In your book, we're talking about a world 600 years in the future. Yeah. Can you expound, tell us about your book? Yeah, so my passion for simulation theory, which is the idea basically that we're living in a giant computer program like the Matrix, started about like three or four years ago and I don't remember what exactly triggered me to be so passionate about it but eventually I came to the conclusion that this is the way it is that everything around me must be a program. I actually did a TEDx talk on this in St. Petersburg in 2017. I'm going to link to that in the notes. Cool. So that was really cool a great experience and it just kind of made me even more curious some of the ways that our reality exhibits behavior that's consistent with a simulation hypothesis, including the two-slit experiment and some other things about quantum physics. Can you tell us about the two-slit experiment? Yeah, sure. So the two-slit experiment, I believe it was done for the first time over 200 years ago. The experiment setup is as follows. On one end, you have a photon cannon, uh, which is basically a device that shoots photons. On the other end, you have a light-sensitive wall which is covered with a light-sensitive material that registers the spot where the photon hits. And in between these two things, you have a barrier that has two long slits. And this experiment was first done just to see how the photon would behave. And it was very interesting because when you have this type of setup and you have this theory about a photon being a particle, you would expect that the photon would hit the back wall in two slits. It would go through either one of the two slits and then would hit uh, the light-sensitive wall in a a place that's consistent with a trajectory between one of either two slits. But that's not what happened. When the photons were shot through this two-slit barrier, so uh, they expected these photons to be neatly grouped into two slits along the light-sensitive wall. But when they actually conducted the experiment, the photons formed a dispersal pattern which was much more similar to what you would expect when a wave were to go through these two slits. 
So if you had water-filled room uh, and you tried to do this experiment, when you uh, drop something in the center, if you were to cause a ripple at one end of the experiment and this ripple would then propagate through the water and through the two slits it would create a dispersal pattern of different types of ripples that would then hit the wall at certain points and that's how the photons behaved when this two-slit experiment was conducted so the two-slit experiment was really kind of like the foundation in physics for why you have this wave particle duality so photons can behave both as waves and as particles the craziest thing is is that when the observers tried to figure out why the photon was behaving this way, they put some sort of camera or other device that's designed to attract the photon behind the barrier, the photon suddenly began behaving as a particle. So the dispersal pattern on the light-sensitive wall changed, right? What's really interesting about this is that there's no direct relationship between this tracking device and the photon. How, how did the photon know it was being watched? So reality behaves in a different way when it's being observed. And you see this in all sorts of different situations, from physics to like sociology, where humans behave much different in situations when they know someone is watching them. This is really interesting because in video games, for example, you have a world that's being rendered, a simulated world that's basically a bunch of algorithms, right? But when it comes onto your screen, those algorithms are rendered. They're uh, put into definition. They're, they're colored. There's all sorts of characteristics that get applied to make them look beautiful on the screen. And this is a process that's really intense for the computer. Your console, your PlayStation or whatever, your computer will spend a lot more energy to render the algorithms of this video game than to make them appear on your screen. But the world outside of the screen also exists at the same time. It's just not rendered. So the machine, the console, is able to save a lot of energy, a lot of computing resources, not rendering the entire simulated world, just the part that you're looking at. It's really fascinating. Yeah. So this experiment was part of the inspiration for your book. Absolutely. Can you tell us about the plot? Yeah, so I'm not going to give away a lot. I think there's going to be some really cool twists. But one of the main story drivers is that in the deep future, humanity merges with technology. We use technology to enhance ourselves to the point where we no longer have to worry about food, clothing, shelter, or death. We're basically living these perfect lives. In the course of this, we kind of get demotivated. Like, what makes us pursue living if there's nothing exciting about it? And at the same time, there's this big movement to address this by people who are creating virtual reality games. And one of the games that are created at this time is a simulation of the whole universe. So our entire universe gets put into a computer program and the players, they get to take over a star. So it's kind of like The Sims, where the player is able to build out all the planets and then all the civilizations on those planets, however they see fit. But the main conflict comes when a virus infects the system and starts causing stars to explode, killing the players in real life. Uh, some of the players that have been infected have to band together to try to figure out the source of the disease and how to heal themselves from it before basically they get killed. And so the way that they decide to do this is to infect a new player with the virus and observe how it spreads. And of course, they choose the planet Earth to do this. 
When can we read this book? When is it going to be published? So the first part, I'm hoping to have it published by the end of the year. I've already finished it. It's going through editing. It's also going to be transformed into a manga. I'm working with a Japanese artist right now to get it put out there as a manga and hopefully, you know, then turn it into an anime. The storyline is very twisted. I play with the themes of hallucinations, possession, drug use, even some things like uh, cloning. I mean, the writing process has been really crazy. I've spent almost 10 years working on this, just dabbling on it in my free time. What's really been challenging is that I wrote 100 pages the first year, and the next year I completely rewrote those same 100 pages. And I've done that, you know, for every subsequent year for eight years. And it's only last year that I started being really comfortable and confident with the story and where it's going. It's very twisted and hard to follow because there are five different characters. Each chapter is dedicated to a different character, so it kind of skips over different storylines. But then the people who are like my beta readers, I guess you would say, mm -hmm. right? they said that once you kind of get over the initial few rounds of characters, you get used to the pacing, and then it starts to make sense what I'm doing. Over 10 years? Yeah. So you had the idea a decade ago? Yeah. And then you've been taking your time to bring it to fulfillment. The idea started out as something completely different. What was the original idea? It had to do with my university. I went to the University of Washington for my undergrad, and it had to do with this university student who discovers a secret about the campus, who like starts to find out things about you know a conspiracy or whatever. But then that idea ch has changed dramatically numerous times. <laughs> Speaking of conspiracies, I know you also enjoy reading conspiracy theories sometimes. Any favorites you want to share with us? <laughs> One of the most relevant and recent examples is this whole uh, Jeffrey Epstein kind of scandal. I won't comment on you know whether or not I think he's dead or some of the other things, but uh, I'm fairly sure that intelligence agencies use similar techniques to get blackmail information on political and business leaders to make sure that there's this added level of compliance with certain demands, right? So when you know that somebody has like cheated on his wife or, you know, done some other illegal things and you have evidence of this, like a videotape or whatever, then that person is much more pliant and able to have less reservations about fulfilling your demands. So the idea that Epstein was acting as an agent for an intelligence group, a national intelligence agency, I think is very plausible. I don't think that rich billionaires are just pedophiles for no reason and engaging in pedophilia with very rich and powerful men for no reason. I think that this kind of uh, operation was more likely something that would have interested intelligence agencies. You know, when you have dirt on Bill Clinton or Prince Andrew, right? That's very interesting for an intelligence agency to have. Narcissists don't usually commit suicide. Well, was somebody interested in killing Jeffrey Epstein? Absolutely. Did Many some people? Did some people have the means to do it? Uh, it? It says a lot that the security footage isn't available. It says a lot that, like you said, both guards fell asleep at the same time. And to me, it's it seems like there could have been some outside actors involved in 
There could have been even a Manchurian candidate inside the jail working there. Yeah, or a team of, you know, experts that infiltrated and, you know, did Sounds it. plausible to me. Of course. Mm-hmm. They do this all the time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. What does the future hold for you, Oleg? Apart from your upcoming book, what projects do you have in your pipeline? Well, I'm getting ready to help a project that's implementing blockchain solutions for corporate enterprise clients. And I'm really interested in general in that space because I've, I've learned quite a bit about blockchain technology in the span of the year of working for a blockchain VC. I, I think that it's very promising, especially some of the applications that they've been really custom uh, tailoring to specific use cases. I think that some of this technology is going to help companies save millions of dollars every year. And those are the technologies that I think are the most interesting and the most perspective. So uh, I'd really like to be involved with different types of projects that are helping companies and enterprises save money. And there's a few of them. My my friend Hunter, uh, who lives in Moscow, he's a Russophile but as, and an American. And he had this idea to start a lobby group for Russian-American relations with the mission of developing warmer relations between Russia and America. And that's something that I also feel very strongly about, seeing as how those are my two homelands, I guess you could say. And I, I really think that Russia and America can never be allowed to have a conflict that deteriorates into something more serious than standing on opposite sides of the battlefield and i really think that regardless of where any conflict takes place with america and russia on opposite sides it, it, it can never be allowed to deteriorate into something where there's a uh, open violence one against the other uh, because the nuclear weapons that these countries possess just the public just the ones that we know about just the ones that are public information are so terrifying any type of conflict between especially between america and russia can never be allowed to go to a nuclear phase and the only way to prevent this completely is to create warm relations between them so i'm really excited about that project and i hope to be able to move that project forward by the end of this year as well before i let you leave i have three final questions for you that i'm asking all of my guests sure so first one book that you recommend everybody read. The Pinnacle of Life, exploration from a neuroscientific uh, perspective about human consciousness. Really interesting. Very interesting. So second of all, your healthy way of handling stress. Healthy? <laughs> <laughs> well, favorite way of handling stress. Don't say drinking in women. <laughs> I'm just going to add the word consensual in there. Uh, yeah, healthy way of handling stress. Let's see. I think hiking. Any favorite places to hike? Yes, there's a few good trails in Washington State near Seattle that I really, really love. There's uh, Rattlesnake Ledge. There's Mailbox. Uh, a few other ones that are really nice. Little Psy, Poopoo Point. What about one place in the world that you recommend everybody visit? Ooh, Ortize. What's the meaning of life for you? I prefer when there are technical definitions for words that you can go off of but when you say meaning it it carries so much emotional understanding um, and so first of all i think that there's the one the one aspect of it that's really easy to answer i think is this biological evolutionary aspect from the biological evolutionary perspective the meaning is to survive and to reproduce right from a very very simple 
biological evolutionary viewpoint on what life is and why it continues i think that that's it from like a deeper kind of spiritual psychological perspective i think we're meant to understand what it is we're doing here i think the curiosity unlocks the doors not only inside of us but uh, so many opportunities in the physical world and being curious about what it is that we're doing here and how the world functions why it functions the way it does is for me a meaning absolutely and staying curious and trying to find ways to discover what it all is i think is super interesting the last meaning of life or whatever is to keep your mind engaged is to keep your mind working and to solve puzzles that that are challenging that make your experience more enriching I love that definition. Very detailed. Thank you, Ola. Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Caitlin. It's a pleasure. Thanks for being my guest. And I love hearing more about where you come from, what you think, and all these amazing projects that you're working on. It's really so cool that you're interested in so many things. You're an author. You're into venture capital. You've met a couple women in your life that you've loved. Very informative. So much I could have kept you here another hour and a half talking for sure well you'll have to come back when your book comes out yeah that sounds like a good idea actually i will mm -hmm. thank you Oleg. thank you bye bye